Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to another episode of From the Ashes. I'm here with Clint Malley, and we're going to talk about the relationship principle, about how people are really the deciding factor in what makes people change and how make what people make people grow. So Clint, I was on your podcast before about a couple months ago on the Sandstone Care podcast talking about uh, teens with anxiety and I'm excited to uh, have you on mine. Yeah, returning the favor. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, your story is incredible from the little bit that I heard of, you know, growing up through foster care, becoming a stuntman and then now getting into kind of the mental health and marketing Fields. Can you share a little bit about your story with the audience? Yeah. So let's go through kind of the bullet points because I want to provide as much value as possible, especially talking about the relationship principle and how it might apply to like the everyday human. Uh, so both my parents are addicts. My dad is a meth addict. My mom is an alcoholic. So I grew up having to really take care of myself. I had no boundaries. And as you can imagine, if you were a middle school student with zero boundaries, you would probably get into a whole bunch of trouble. And that was me. Um, So because I had no boundaries, I also had no supervision. I had to spend a lot of time stealing food. I got into drugs, obviously fighting, got into relationships way too early. Um, The age of 13, I was given acid by my uh, sister's um, boyfriend, right? So like, just inundated with all of this grown-up stuff way too soon. And um, around, I was always staying at other people's houses because I didn't like to stay at my house because there was never any food. So I got really good at being able to talk with people and to get to know my friends and their families and just kind of invite myself over, right? And so with that, these parents of the families who I was staying with started being like, why is this kid around all the time? Where, you know, where is his parents? Why, why isn't he, uh, why isn't he home ever? Like who's calling about this kid? And so one family took a lot of interest. They heard my story and they decided that they would offer to be my legal guardians. And, uh, but they said that my parents had to sign over guardianship. So, I talked with my parents and I was slowly able to convince them to take me to the courthouse and to sign over guardianship of me to them. And, uh, and they did. And it was this big, awesome thing. I was taken to this really rich school. I was in this new family. I had clothes, I had food. I had like all the things that I definitely didn't have. Um, and I also still really struggled. <laughs> I was like a little caveman. I, because I grew up with no boundaries, it was really hard for me to be able to adjust to the norms of a family. I don't know if you feel this way, Mark, but um, in a family, there's all kinds of little things that the family thinks is normal. But uh, to the outsiders, to, to an outside person, it's unique. It's different. Yeah. It's individualized, right? So I did not know any of those things. I didn't pick up on any of those things. And I really struggled with school, uh, still struggled to break old habits. And eventually after a year, that family uh, <laughs> dropped me back off at the doorstep of my parents' house. And I was like, I'm not going back. So I drifted for a while. Another family took me in um, and they stuck with me. But I was still just, you know, a really like a bad <laughs> kid. I don't know how else to say it. You know, I got in a fight with a police officer. I stole a car. I went to juvie and... From all of these different things, I really just barely got by graduating high school and enough of the family to be like, okay, please like go do your own thing now. Um, and uh, go ahead. Can I ask you, yeah, can I ask you how you felt during that time? Like, were you, were you angry? Were you sad? Were you just kind of like lost and confused? Like what was, I mean, you're rattling off a lot of really intense experiences. What was your internal experience like during that phase? <laughs> Yeah, I think the internal experience is always related to a sense of home and wanting to feel like you belong. At the end of the day, especially after the first family, you know, gave me up, I feel like if anyone knew the real me, 
and I think most people can relate to this. If anyone knew the real me, then they really wouldn't like me, right? If anyone knew how I was deep down, um, then if I was exposed, then they would quickly change their opinion of me. So it was just survival, you know, like when you're in that stage, you're thinking about yourself first. And so oftentimes that caused a lot of negative social interactions with my teachers, with friends, with family, like, because I was always putting myself first, right? I was trying to make it. <laughs> so I, I think that's how I would say I felt. Yeah. So it sounds like there's like some shame underneath there, but just trying day by day, right? Just in the moment, as you said, trying to get food, trying to eat, trying to just find any sense of belonging that, that you could. Totally. Absolutely. And so once I, once I graduated high school, I was like, all right, like, because I, you know, was adopted by these families, I fell into a certain income bracket where they would pay for my schooling. And so they, um, so I got the Pale Grant, I applied to a community college, and then flunked out my first semester, <laughs> just, just crashed and burned. And I was waiting tables outside of high school after flunking college. And I was like, man, there's got to be something better than this. I spent like a, you know, a 12 hour shift. And I think I made 16 bucks. And I was just oh, like, this yeah. cannot be, <laughs> I'm not good at this. This is not what I meant to do. Right. Um, they were opening up a dinner theater called medieval times down the street. And um, basically it's, you know, nights riding on horses, jousting, sword fighting, playing the story um, in the sand pit while people eat chicken legs and things like that. And uh, I was like, Hey, I can do that. Cause I was an athlete throughout school. Um, and I was always pretty, as you can tell, I was always pretty charismatic or uh, I had no problem talking to people as a, as a way to kind of survive. And so I worked there and quickly realized this was an amazing job for anybody who's outside of high school. But if I wanted to survive, I'm going to have to do something else because my body is eventually going to break. There's no like 50 year old stuntman who like stays in the game that long. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I decided I'd apply again for a college. Um, I picked a Christian college because I was like, man, they've got to have grace, right? <laughs> they, they, like, they, sh they say that they believe in grace, so they have to admit me. And they did. <laughs> uh, you know. And I started into a summer program, and I had a teacher, and it was a small class. And the guy was just really curious, and he asked a lot of questions, and he kind of showed me that if I just did the work, <laughs> then maybe I could do well in that class. Um, and around the same time, I went to therapy because I had a really great track record of burning relationships, right? So like cheating on girlfriends or um, just like doing something to dramatically damage my character about every year, <laughs> right? Um, and so during that summer of going to counseling, having a teacher, having somebody kind of walk me through all of my trauma, um, it came to a point in which the, the counselor said, hey, so, you know, all this stuff that you did, you know, fighting with cops, getting in fights, you know, drugs, whatever, why did you do it? And I said a whole bunch of things, right? Like, oh, my parents, like how I grew up, it was hard. One family gave me back. And he's like, no, 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 no. Why'd you do it? I was like, well, I was drunk. I was high. Like all of these excuses. And he said, no, do you remember what you did? I was like, Yeah. He's like, did anyone have a gun to your head? And I was like, no. And he said, you did all of those things because you wanted to. And for me, that was an illuminating situation, right? Like mm -hmm. the bad stuff that was in my life as a consequence of my bad decisions was in my control. And if I didn't want to have those bad consequences, then I needed to change my behavior. And I know it's like a very simple, simple thing, um, but it's something I would have never have come to if somebody hadn't been able to just kind of call me on my shit. So right, like were you stuck in that kind of victim mentality that always things were happening to you or that you had no choice? Like, it sounds like you, this teacher really, you know, inspired you to take responsibility for your life. Yeah. Yeah. Between the teacher and the counselor, yeah. you know, like, Hey, you can, you can learn if you read, if you do the work, right. Hey, like you can do better if you change your actions. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and those things, and it's not that people hadn't said something like that to me before, but I guess my brain, my body, like who I was needed to develop to a point to where I could actually hear it. Um, and, and that's where I think this whole concept of the relationship principle kind of plays in, right? 
because we live in this information age in which we have unlimited access to blogs and podcasts and videos and all of these different things that we can use to better ourselves. And yet there's still so many people who find themselves in these patterns and these ways of thinking in which they cannot get out of. And it's not until somebody comes along and listens and forms a genuine relationship with you that you're able to kind of have that mental unlock so that everything else can actually come into fruition. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's really true. I think we have to be witnessed first, which is what I hear in your story, right? Like these people actually saw you for who you were, right? For all of it, right? For some of the bad decisions, for who you were underneath, for who you were trying to become. And then, you know, putting that intervention out of, hey, take responsibility for your actions, but from a place of wanting to genuinely help. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you felt this way, but... I know that you've you've had key people in your life that at some point they were there for a certain amount of time and for the circumstances, the environment, they made a big difference, right? And so like, I guess I'm kind of interested in, in, in how those things also played out in your own life, right? Like how did those relationships, why was it that time? Why was it that place that allowed you to be able to kind of have these breakthroughs too? Yeah, I think for me, it was really coming from a place of rock bottom, of really being my back against the wall, feeling broken in a lot of ways. You know, two people, it's very similar. It's like teach a teacher and a counselor in college. You know, it's um, my counselor, Jeff Beyer, and my uh, teacher, Dr. Patricia Carpenter. And they kind of raised me, right? I mean, they were surrogate parents for me. And I, I met with my therapist every week. I met with, I uh, went to office hours with Dr. Carpenter every week. And I think it's like they saw me yeah, they saw me for who I was and they listened to who I was. And they seemed to have endless patience and not just that, but take joy in it, right? Where I felt like a lot of the other adults in my life at that time were maybe just like tolerating me or using me for something, whether that be a job or a role. But these two people were interested in me. Yeah. And did you have people like that before who tried to say things to you and tried to like, kind of reach out to you, but it wasn't as successful. Yeah, probably. Right. But it's just, I think they get lost. They get lost to memory around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine there were other teachers. I mean, I had an English teacher in high school that I think broke through a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think for me that the, the obstacle was grandiosity. I thought I was better than a lot of people. That's how I dealt with my shame is I just like swung in the other direction of like, oh, like I'm not the problem. Everyone is the problem. So I was like a very angry, grandiose child um, as a defense. Did you have a monocle and a top hat and you, you know, <laughs> you kind of went around and, and, and that, that was that you? God, no. I mean, probably metaphorically. Um, but no, I mean, I just... Because, you know, I struggled physically. I was overweight. You know, I had no game with women whatsoever, but I was smart. And I think I would just tell myself, oh, well, I'm smarter than everybody. So that's why, you know, they don't like me. That's why they're bullying me. That's why everyone's just like jealous of me, which is, you know, huge distortion. But it was the counterpoint to falling to that shame that I hear you talk about around like, oh, yeah, like maybe I am worth bullying or maybe I am like, you know, the low man, on the totem pole or, or whatever it is that, I mean, I would feel that sometimes too, but that was a lot more painful. Yeah. And I think, you know, something we can kind of dive into a little bit after the break. I think what's interesting is when we start comparing stories of people, you know, within our culture, we have this mindset that if you're consistent, if you hustle, if you work hard, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Part of the reason why people like a podcast like this is because it's stories of success. It's an underdog story, right? It's about people who've been able to overcome sort of some sort of obstacle. But I think that it's even a little bit more complex than that, because there's people who are still working their asses off, who work really fucking hard who do everything in their power, and yet they still don't have those same type of results. So I think, you know, when we're thinking about the relationship principle, I think the thing worth considering is where's the gap? Why is that the case for some people and then for other people it's not? Yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on that because that, yeah, right, that's the thing that's puzzled psychology since its inception, right? It's like, why do some people change while others don't? And there's so much, I mean, you know this from some of the work you do with Sandstone Care, there's so much standardized care, which is like, hey, this works for maybe most people. I don't even know it's most people, maybe like 30% of people. 
but just fails on a bunch of other people because it's very rote and it, and it can get like repetitive. But I think, you know, what the people at your facility do, you know, and I think what some therapists do not enough, but they really step into that personal knowing of others, right? They move off of the curriculum, move off of the agenda, just like you're saying, right? You can get all the, all the data and information in the world, but like the delivery and it coming from another person is, is, is critical. It's absolutely critical. Yeah. And I think it's definitely worth at least, you know, tackling, okay, how does gender play a role in this? How does race play a role in this? How does socioeconomic status play a role in this? Because I think that if we don't consider those types of contexts too, <laughs> then we get a really messed up picture. We get a huge letdown. We get this idea of what's possible. And then in reality, we realize, oh, there are other external factors that do not make this the same way for so-and-so as it is for me. And I think that that's stuff that's worth exploring. I think it's worth talking about because I think it's not talked about enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's definitely not one size fits all, right? Based on all these different dimensions. So we got to talk about another end of the break. So we're going to move into our commercial now. Um, for those of you listening, if you want to hang on, listen more about the relationship principle and about the people in your lives that make a difference. I'd be curious as you hear Clint speak, if there's any people that come to your mind um, that have helped you throughout, throughout, your, uh, throughout your life. Okay. Hang in, we'll catch you on the other side. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay dot teachable dot com that's mark m a r c dash azulay a z o u l a y dot teachable dot com it's your world motivate change succeed voice america empowerment dot com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm sitting here with Clint Malley, and we're talking about the relationship principle. Basically, it's, it's the idea that it's the people in our lives that make the change, right? That help us to you know, rise from the ashes, as we talk about in the show, or help us become better versions of ourselves, or help us recover. It's those people coming in at those critical moments. And Clint, you were just talking about how you had heard before, probably the same stuff before, take responsibility for your actions, that you can do better, that I believe in you, but it pinged off of you. It, it bounced off of you. So, I want to bring you back to that summer you were talking about, specifically these these people. What what helped to get in this time? What about them? What about you? What was the coalition of variables? So the answer is probably not going to be super satisfying because I think one of the biggest parts about it is time, right? So you hear the same thing over and over again from different people. And at one point, especially as you're coming into young adulthood, Maybe it's your brain is developed enough to where you're able to actually hear it. Maybe you've had an experience that suddenly allowed this stuff to start making sense. I think for me, you know, I, I had been engaged twice. I had cheated on them twice, right? So it was like this 
it was this really like there was no other way for me to say, hey, I have destructive habits. These are like very similar to my parents' habits. I, I am becoming the thing that I did not want to, that I was running away from by living with these other families. And I knew I didn't want that, right? I also didn't know how to change. I think another thing about counseling that was super helpful for me, and this might be kind of divisive for listeners, but, but I'm just going to say it because it's true. So for me, I was also, you know, because I really wanted that home environment, I really clung to Christianity early on. I was like, oh, this is like, you have a father and it's like a family. And so the church was kind of this surrogate type of thing. And so I fell really hard into that, trying to, you know, read the Bible, to pray, to like go to church, to be a part of that community. But I always felt like there was this duality, right? The, the Bible talks about like a sinful nature and like a, I guess, a heavenly nature, right? Or old, you know, Native American parables talk about two wolves fighting within each other. But the thing, the thing for me is that seemed like a terrible way to live, that I had this monster inside of me that was always waiting to come out. And if I, you know, slipped up, it was just ready to pounce. That is exhausting to feel like you have the Hulk that at any point could come and just fuck up your whole life, right? And so for me, when the counselor told me this, for, for me, it was like, hey, so if I don't read, if I don't pray, if I don't do any of these things that I feel like are going to like make me more holy, what's going to happen to me? And so I stopped. I stopped, you know, doing those things. I was reading the Bible and like praying for an hour each every day. <laughs> and then I stopped and I didn't get struck by lightning and it was okay. And I used that time to do other stuff like study or read a textbook or um, like actually do my homework. And I got good results with that. And so I started seeing this parallel that, you know, it's exhausting trying to push what you believe us to be a simple nature down instead of just trying to, to be a good person. <laughs> I, I don't know if, the, if that makes sense, but if you're trying to suppress this monster that you think is inside of you, that is an exhausting way to live rather than just focusing on trying to love people and trying to do things better in your control. Yeah. I, I love, it, it makes a ton of sense and it relates you know, a lot to my story of addiction recovery, because in classical addiction recovery, you have this idea that there's this addict inside of you, right? And the addict is that Hulk monster, right? It's this thing that is going to come out and do a bunch of drugs and, you know, fuck a bunch of people and become, you know, ruin your life, right? Ruin your life. And luckily I was exposed to some people that helped counter that for me, you know, early enough on, but I can definitely relate to trying to suppress that. But what I suppressed it with was fear probably. And, and I think hate, right? Like hating that part of myself. And that would manifest in it popping out even stronger, right? Because it was that shame that was fueling that part of me. Um, so when I look oh, at, you know, working with my clients or just helping people, I mean, forget about being professional at this point, it's like, it's about that holistic life change, what I hear you saying, right? Like it's about creating a life that you actually want to live, that is actually supportive, that you don't have to push the evil away. You're just living in in integrity, right? You're living with your values. You're living and you're becoming the person you want to be. It, it's a much more gentler <laughs> piece, you know, but I think it does force you to take responsibility for every aspect of your life. And even things outside of your control, taking responsibility for how you deal with them, right? And how you move through them. Yeah. And I, I think going back to your original question, what is it about these people, right? So there's time, but I think the other thing about it is that it was a person, one person, a single person. Um, later on, after I graduated with my bachelor's, got my master's in teaching, I went into the classroom um, in the inner cities of Atlanta, and I was a teacher. And one of the things that was really interesting is I had a lot of students who were significantly behind grade level, right? Um, their reading level, their math, even their social skills, like because of circumstances, because of societal racism, like systemic racism, there was just a lot of inequity, um, inequality within that system. And they were behind, right? And so I started doing some research and like, you know, we had everything. We had small class sizes. We had one-to-one -one computers. We had teachers who were really good and who cared. And yet these students would stay behind. They would not catch up year after year after year. They would get passed along through the system um, until these things became worse and worse. Maybe they dropped out of school or maybe they got their shit together, right? But for me, I was like, hey, what do I do? How can I actually help these students? And, and so I started doing some research. And one of the 
one of the, the forms of research that was really interesting was the power of one-on-one, right? So there's a curve, right? If you're trying to catch somebody up on grade level, a one-on-one, a tutoring interaction, one human with one human, you get significant results. When you go from one to two, it's like a, a sharp drop just from that one to two. So having a single person who genuinely listened and who is willing to hear my story and to help me out and to be honest with me, um, whether it's a therapist or a teacher, was super impactful. And I think that compounded with time became a really, really powerful force. The other thing that I think that's worth calling out is the time aspect. When I got into a fight with a police officer at the age of 13 and got sent to juvie, you know what didn't happen to me? I didn't get shot and killed, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I stole a car and got pulled over for speeding and running a stop sign, instead of getting taken in, they impounded the car and let my friends pick me up, which is looking back, I don't even understand how that was legal. It's like the most bizarre thing ever, right? But it happened, right? And so I think race was a huge part of this. Had to have been. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think about my little brother who's gigantic now and, and he's, you know, at the same age, he's, he's mixed. Right. And so, so if he were in that situation, the result could have been completely different. Mm-hmm. Right. I was the same age as Trayvon Martin when I got into a physical fight with a police officer. Right. Um, and things were really different for me. And the concept that, you know, Ibram X Kendi, he talks about like, either you believe that, Black people, African-Americans as a whole are lazy or that there is systemic racism. There's no middle ground. There's, it's one or the other, right? It's like, what, what, what's the alternative, yeah. right? Like, it, is there another reason why they're, you know, behind in school, socioeconomic status, more likely to become addicted, like all of these different things. Either there's like systems at play and environmental forces that prevent the the advance of a people (laughs) or the alternative, right? So I think it's really about privilege. It was about time, me having enough time to to mess up and not get put into jail or or die. (laughs) And then also the one-on-one nature, right? Um, So I say, if I were thinking about the holy trinity of the relationship principle, it would be those three things. I think that's really well said. I think you're combining some internal forces and some external forces. So my question for you, I mean, it ties back to your time in Atlanta, is then what do you do with people that don't have the privilege and may not have the time? Is there any hope there? Yeah, I think I think the biggest question that I'm asking myself these days is how is the work that I'm doing helping to make the world more equitable, right? And so we tend to think about equality in forms of like giving to charities or to, you know, sponsoring a program or yes, I'd like to round up on my purchase to go to this foundation. Right. But real, real love towards equity is work and it comes through relationship. So, you know, part of the goal of like the personal marketing type of content that I put out I put this stuff out because it's not stuff that I learned in school, but it also allowed me to advance my career, Mm -hmm. right? I put that stuff out for free instead of blocking it behind a paywall because I want people to be able to learn skills that level the playing field. Mm -hmm. Now, the other part of that is that you can't just create content and put it out there, but you actually have to form relationships with these people. Um, And best if it's done in a one-on-one fashion, Mm -hmm. if you're actually like getting to know this person. And to me, that's stuff that makes sense, right? Like you create content that is equitable. You do things that help promote equality. And you're also willing to put in work for these one-on-one relationships to help people out. Yeah, Does that make sense? It, it does. It does. I'm curious if you have a story of someone that you've reached, right? It sounds like you're in the process of moving from someone that needed, right, that one-on-one relationship to someone who can now provide that. It's pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah, it's 
Yeah, it's interesting. So for example, you know, I have a YouTube channel, Clem Alley Content Marketing. I have a website, clemmalley.com. And I do YouTube videos, I have a podcast, and, and the goal of that is to teach these things, right? And so I'll get emails or I'll get uh, messages from my website or I'll get DMs on social media. And a lot of the times it's these younger folks. It's these younger folks who are asking questions. And what I could do is I could just answer their question. I could give them a link to a previous video, right? But what somebody did for me at some point was actually sit and listen to me and get my context. And so part of what I've been doing is I've actually been setting up meetings just like this to go over um, their marketing life, what they're doing, what they're not doing, and how they can advance their career. You know, and it's been cool because it's like international. It's like some people in South America, some people um, like over in Europe, right? And then some people here. And that shit makes me feel good. Like that makes me feel like I'm doing something that's actually helpful, right? That is really cool. It's really cool that you can like reach out to people all over the world with the message of equity underneath it all, right? Of trying to level the playoff that I really, and that's inspiring to hear. And, and I think as the goal, like, you know, what is it that you're doing, right? Like with your stories, why is, why is um, like, why is it the underdog story, the catalyst that you choose to tell, right? Why is that this from the ashes narrative, something that's so important? It's because that we all want to believe in that hope for ourselves, right? And so I guess, you know, if I'm trying to like understand a little bit more from your perspective, because we had very different things. Like, you know, I had the game with the girls. Like I was like, I was the jock, right? I did Let's not nice. feel like I was the, the, the smart dude, right? <laughs> we were polar opposites. You know, when it came to, when it came to like these interactions you had with the counselor and with the teacher, how did that change the relationships that you had with other people? That's a great question. I, I think it made me more available to them by making me more available to myself, right? Like I would push away all of my emotions through humor or through anger or through like anxiety, right? I was really good at not feeling anything and just moving really fast with one of those energies and to tell my story and to have, you know, these people ask me, you know, just critical questions and to see their reaction or to actually see them tear up or well up or happy touched by what I'm saying was something that I wasn't able to feel. Right. And I needed to see that. I needed to see like, Oh wow. They're like, is a lot of hurt here, you know, or like, Oh wow. Like this is, this is pretty serious because again, with the whole thing of like using grandiosity to block shame, a lot of that was me saying like, Oh, it's not serious. I don't have to worry about it. But like just very dismissive consistently and constantly pushing things away. So by being able to open up more to myself and, integrate myself, right? Not pretend like I was a different person. That's also something I did in college. I was like, I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to just lie to a bunch of people, right? Um, you know, being able to integrate who I was and to see that that part of me, um, I mean, not just acknowledged, but actually nurtured in some ways was, was life-changing, right? Because I, I truly hated parts of myself, right? Truly wanted to kill parts of myself. Um, and I tried for, through drugs, right? I tried to kill off parts of myself, um, by yeah, using different substances. Yeah. And like following up with that. So was there a moment where you were like, Oh, I feel like I'm actually having healthy relationships now. <laughs> was there, was there a time like where you, where that seemed like clear to you? Yeah. I think it took a while. I mean, it, it got me like grad school, maybe post-grad school, I start to had that, right? The first thing was just kind of breaking down my illusions, right? Because I, you know, I would sell drugs. I was a drug dealer through most of college. And I thought that my um, clients, for lack of a better word, were my friends. You know, and I was that drug dealer that would get high with the people, give them free stuff, like just want them to hang out with me because I had the thing that they wanted. But for them, they were like, get away from me, dude. Like, I just want to buy your shit and, and, and leave, right? Um, I, but I was very lonely, you know, and, and I convinced myself, you know, through drugs as like a status symbol that I was, that I belonged, that I was part of something, right? So if I was, if I was getting any girls, it was because I had drugs, right? If I was having any friends, it was because I had drugs. Like I, it wasn't because of me and who I was. So I think getting sober, going through, you know, hell of a lot of darkness there, and then finally reconnecting with people based on who I was, um, it was a long process. But yes, to answer your question, there was a, a process where I was like, oh, okay, people do actually want to be around me. 
you know, I don't have to like bribe them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I could have, I can, and it probably happened just all of a sudden, right? Like mm-hmm. you didn't even realize it until one day you're like, actually, I feel like I'm connecting with this person. I feel like this person likes me for me, <laughs> you know? And, and it just, it, it happens before you realize it. It's not usually like this epiphany moment. And then, and you're like, and then I had positive relationships. It's like, you just realize that you're not having toxic relationships. Right. Exactly. And then realizing how to take it in similar to what you're saying of not wanting to spit it out or self-sabotage it or do something like mean to that person out of nowhere. Because for me, taking in that love was also, it was so scary. It was like, so scary, even though it's a good thing, it was terrifying for me to truly allow myself to be nurtured. And I, and for the first couple, I definitely destroyed them, right? Burnt the bridge when it got too serious. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's, I feel exactly the same. I was right there. Right. right? There with you. I know it's like people are trying, but it's, yeah, it feels like poison. So we're going to move into our commercial break. I want to hear more about that from you. And then our, in our last segment, we talked directly to the listeners. So if there's anybody out there that feels similar to how Clint and I are, are describing ourselves, um, we'll offer some advice, some connection, hopefully, you know, a story that might help to move the needle even just a little bit. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you on the other side of the break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay dot teachable dot com that's mark m-a-r-c dash azulay a-z-o-u-l-a-y dot teachable dot com it's your world motivate change succeed voiceamericaempowerment.com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. Sitting here with Clint Malley, and we're talking about the relationship principle. In the break, we were talking about how not all relationships can be helpful. And one that was true, I think, in both of our stories was this idea of comparison. Um, I know for, for me, it was fueled by a lot of judgment and insecurity. I'm curious for Clint what your comparison was like in your life. Yeah, I, I think especially as you're coming into young adulthood, the idea of comparison is huge, Right. Who's graduated school or not? Who has student loan debt or not? Who has a career versus a job, right? Who has the skills that they feel like are giving them the amount of money that they want versus those who are still struggling, right? We think about that failure to launch population. The people who are still living at home and the people who feel like, hey, I can't get out of this stuckness. Like I've never launched into adulthood. I think the comparison thing is super, super big. It was big for me, um, where I was constantly juxtaposing myself with other people and, and in a really, really unhealthy way. 
And I think that this really applies to when we think about this whole bootstrap mentality, this hustle culture, like, don't get me wrong. I hustle, right? I wake up early. I work hard. I have a full-time job. I do side project content all the time, right? And, and so I hustle, but I cannot look at any of the success that I've had without the context of the privilege that I've also had. And I think that that is, that is such an important part when it comes to like how we're communicating so that we're not coming across as tone deaf. We think that if we did something, that anybody can do something, right? Um, or if one person has, has done it, then anybody can do it. The blueprint is there. Um, but the reality is that most people are also facing different challenges that are completely different from your own, right? And you're not even going to know what those are until you untangle those with them. So, uh, so for me, when I'm thinking about, okay, if I'm a young person and I'm trying to make this world a little bit better place, but I'm also trying to advance my career, I'm trying to get to that place of income or relationship status or just general happiness with who I am. I know that I cannot do it. I cannot live out this relationship principle if I'm also comparing myself to others and comparing other people's progress with my own. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable amount of drag on the system right, to be comparing, either comparing up or comparing down, because it takes us away from getting to know who we are, you know, and I, and I liked, I said during the break, I got a story for this, of knowing that other people don't have it the same that I do, and this was early in my career, right, it was right as the power privilege stuff was just about to hit, I want to say like around like 2013, 2014, I was really aware of the privilege that I had. So long story short, I think I talked about it in one of my other podcasts, but long story short, my recovery process, I didn't go to rehab. I didn't go to an intensive outpatient program. Uh, what I went to is I did a um, 60 day Buddhist retreat at the Allegheny Zen Center outside of Pittsburgh. That was my rehab. Um, and just, <laughs> I didn't realize I had to be sober, which is also really funny. I didn't know I had to be sober. Like I didn't consider it. I think I had like a, unconscious subconscious motivator to like sign up for it but then i didn't realize that i'm actually going through withdrawal and detox at this buddhist center right <laughs> because and you can bring any drugs with you and you can't leave and there's no technology there was no outside world connection so i just like locked myself in this place um and just meditated and like literally did lawn like yard work you know for 60 days um and I didn't go to an IOP program. That's an intensive outpatient program like Sandstone Care. Um, but I went to Naropa University, which is a local university in Colorado that's an alternative school that has a lot of personal work. So both these things are very privileged. Both of these things are privileged in terms of income and finances to afford them. Um, both of them are privileged in terms of being able to access Eastern traditions and religion, which is still in some ways very rare in the West. Um, being able to have people like the Zen monk who I met at in my university, you know, just like there's so many things that stacked me up to have this experience that early in my career, early in my private practice, I made some genuine mistakes when I didn't think that people had to go to rehab or didn't have to go to a program or didn't have to take advantage of government services or, you know, use their Medicaid or Medicare benefits. Um, I had this idea of like, yes, I bootstrapped myself, right? Like I did it myself and I did it this way of like, meditation and mindfulness and spirituality and whatever. And it was all very grandiose and very, very privileged way of looking at it. Um, because at that time I hadn't really acknowledged, you know, the roles that my parents played, you know, good for good in this case, you know, I didn't acknowledge the roles that these teachers that I talked about early on played. I like, I, I convinced myself that I did all, all by myself. And I got really humbled when the people that needed to go to rehab and, and IOP didn't get referred and they failed, right? And I got really humbled when I had to look at my own story and was like, yeah, I didn't do that by myself at all, right? Like I was in many ways lifted up and in some ways dragged um, towards recovery. Yeah, that story is so helpful. And I think that it's, it's great that you're able to like look back at that and to say, hey, this is something that was not normal. <laughs> this is not the case, right? And I think that over time, as you get older, that's the only way you're able to see that, right? That's the only way you're able to, to actually look back and be like, oh, every time, you know, I stole food as a kid, going, I would go into a grocery store, open a bag of chips or a drink or whatever, I would eat it in the store and I would leave, right? 
and nobody ever said anything to me. That is not the case with most people, right? That's not the case with, with different areas, right? Um, I remember when I stole food in the cafeteria at school and the lunch ladies knew this, but they didn't, they didn't care. Right? They're like, this kid's hungry, right? But it could have been very, very different for me. Um, and so I'm just, I'm super fired up with the idea that if we really, really want to help people, we one have to be aware that, that in order to actually bridge that gap between our own experiences and privileges and to be able to impart some sort of knowledge or help that we actually have to form a relationship with somebody, right? There's that old, how I built this question that they ask at the end of every podcast. It's like a business podcast. And they said, you know, is your success a result of hard work or is it luck? Right. And I've heard luck defined a bunch of different ways. Right. When we think about from the ashes stories, we're thinking about how did you overcome? How did you overcome? But really, there is this other element that there is this other variable. And luck is sometimes described as, you know, where opportunity and preparation meet. But I think luck, really, if we if we boil it down, it is relationships. It is the key relationships that we're able to unlock certain things in our brain, in our mind, in our environment that we didn't have before. It came through people, which is both very powerful and it's also kind of scary that people would have so much power to be able to help other people out. Yeah, as you're talking, it makes me think there's a... Uh... Ram Dass quote back to, I guess that's on the spirituality kick where he says, um, you know, all we're doing in this life is walking each other home. And that quote mm -hmm. always kind of stuck with me, you know, as I went to my job as a private practice therapist and it sounds like as you're doing of walking next to somebody, right? Sometimes for a long time, sometimes for a very short time, but we're all trying to walk each other home. And that, that just, yeah, it makes me feel emotional just, just thinking about that because you, know, you have these these interactions with people. And I think you asked me when we were preparing for this, um, if I'm still in contact with those two people, the, you know, the teacher and the counselor today. And I said, no, you know, um, I mean, one of them unfortunately has passed and, and one is, you know, still working as a counselor as far as I know. But it's, it's this crazy image of like us walking together for two years and then separating. And now I get to walk next to people for a little bit and at some point separate. And I, I know and I hope that they're walking next to people and they get to separate. But it's, yeah, it's scary, but I think it's also really powerful to, to see the connections and how much impact we can have on others if we really do take the time to be with them. Totally. And I, I think find the shit that you really, really love and let that be the thing that you help somebody with right? The stuff that you really care, if it's therapy, great, right? If it's marketing like me, great. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. But for most people, it's going to be completely different, but you can help somebody with something you're passionate about in a one-on-one -on -one type of relationship. And it's not going to feel like charity, mm -hmm. right? I get so excited to talk about this kind of stuff, even if it's like, hey, I could be doing a million other things, spending an hour, have been spending an hour with somebody um, in Palestine, right? Um, but at the same time, I know that like, I'm doing something I love and I'm helping someone get somewhere where they're going to be more happy. Um, that's a powerful thing that everyone does have a chance to, to do. If you're able to learn anything, then you can turn around and help somebody else do that thing, right? Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. And I think it's connecting through passion and connecting through that like pure no agenda, right? Of like, I'm sharing something, you're receiving something and we're learning something together. Like that is such a healing experience, I think for both people, right? And I like that doesn't feel like charity because charity has this thing of like, I'm better and I'm helping down. Whereas I think this is like relationship, right? It's, it's growth. It's, it's mutual growth. It's, it's mentorship. It's, you know, learning and connecting through, through love and acceptance, which is really powerful and, and really vulnerable. Mm, I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. I, I think it is the singular unlock that when we have that mindset that if we can form a relationship with someone that can help them out, 
that our life is also going to be better. It's also not going to feel like work. Forget charity. It's not going to feel like work. It's going to feel like, hey, I'm doing something I love. And a side effect of this is that I'm helping somebody else do something they love. Um, and that's the sweet spot. That's the place that that's the place where you know you're doing the right thing. Right, right. And that's what real community is. And we've talked about it, I think you and me, and so much on this podcast of how that's lacking, right? And I think this is a step into true community. Yes, especially for my white dudes out there. Like, hey, like, think about this shit. You're white, and that's and there's nothing wrong with that. And at the same time, that's afforded you a lot of privilege. And it's okay to understand that. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, it's okay. <laughs> That's a great way to start to wrap up. So Clint, thank you so much for joining. I'd love to have you on a future episode one of these days. Um, as we're ending here, can you let people know where to find you online if they have any questions or want to speak with you? Totally. So um, if, if you have a teen or young adult who needs substance use or mental health treatment, sandstonecare.com. We have the Sandstone Care podcast and the Sandstone Care YouTube channel. If you want to connect with me personally, you can go to clintmally.com. Um, also the Clint Malley podcast and also the Clint Malley content marketing YouTube channel. Three tutorials that are just helpful to help people expand their business. But there's ways for you to schedule up with me just for free. Yeah, there's a lot of great ways to talk to them. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you so much, listeners, for joining. Hopefully, you got something out of this conversation. And we'll see you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same. <laughs>